Even as you're seated and we prepare ourselves to hear from God's Word today, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me. After a long time, we are returning to 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, please do open it once again to the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read for us verses 1 to 10. So do listen as I read God's Word, then we will pray and begin to consider this together this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. But since, er, therefore, when we could no longer bear it, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse six, but now Timothy has come to us from you and he's brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all our joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray. Lord God, it is our constant cry to you whenever we open up your word that you would be pleased to make it clear to us. Lord, we spend this time each week in hearing your word preached, not merely because it seems the thing to do in church and not to simply follow certain practices and tradition, but we do so because your scripture has called on us to, because of the conviction that we have that your word is the true and living word of God. And that every portion of it you have given to us for profitable purpose in our life. And so, Lord, as we take up to consider the things that we will see in this chapter, this section of verses today, I ask God that you would grant and enable me to speak very clearly and faithfully. Once again, I call upon you, God, that you would help and assist everyone who's gathered uh, to be able, by your grace, to remain attentive and to receive from your word. Lord, grant us understanding, grant us application, grant us encouragement in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, when, when you read through this section, if, if you're reading through it carefully and slowly and focused, what you begin to see is there is a certain repetition that takes place in there. I'm going to draw your attention to that. I've really titled this sermon, Your Faith, 
because that phrase keeps getting repeated in this passage. And that's our goal every time we open up a passage. Not just, this is the message I have and this is the sermon I want to give and so I'm going to use this text to get to where I want to go. No, no, no. The hope is, this is where the scripture takes us. This is what God is leading us to recognize and learn today. And that our, our best hope is to be dependent on God's word. And you'll see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Timothy will be sent there to establish and exhort you in your faith. In verse 5, it says, the, I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. In verse 6, it speaks to them, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith. In verse 7, they've been comforted about you through your faith. In verse 10, we seek to see you face to face to supply what is lacking in your faith. And so we see that a very strong theme in this section of the scriptures is the faith of those people in Thessalonica. And so I want us to consider something about their faith today and get a grasp of that. Now they had, when Paul had come there and preached the gospel to them, the scripture says they'd received the gospel in much affliction and hardship. Things were very difficult and yet they received the gospel. He also re responds, and we've already seen this, that when the gospel was preached to them, they received it for what it is. Not the word of men, but the word of God. And so their faith has a beginning point. Now that's not what is necessarily being looked at here, but I want us to be aware that faith has a beginning point. Now Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 say this, and many of us know this verse, and I want us to know it well. It's a good verse to commit to memory. And beyond that, it's, it's a verse that in the, in the mercies of God, to some extent, I had committed to memory in my childhood, but I hadn't really thought about what it meant until many, many years later. What is that? Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves or not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So how are we saved? By grace, through faith. How much of that is mine or your own doing? None of it. The grace does not have its origins in me. And shockingly, the faith does not have its origins in me. What about the salvation? That doesn't have its origins in me either. Everything, the grace, the faith, the salvation, all of that has its origins in who? God. It is the gift of God that we have faith. It's important to know that because this is part of the challenge. We live in such a day and age where people refer to faith differently than the scriptures do. And that's what messes us up. And part of the problem is we think like human beings. And that's hard to escape because we pretty much are human beings. But God's thoughts aren't our thoughts. 
and God's ways are not our ways. So if we're going to understand God's working, we've got to learn to set aside our own thoughts and expectations and assumptions and let God tell us who he is, let God tell us how he works, and then we reorient by grace. We change the way that we think to say that we think of it wrong. Because the terminology that we use is different than the terminology the scripture uses. We've discussed this to a degree in the past. And, and a wrong idea in this ends up coming across as a wrong idea in our teaching, our preaching, our understanding of the gospel. Because when this scripture tells us this, faith is the gift of God. Many modern preachers... Probably because they themselves have been taught that way. I don't want to point fingers meanly at them. But the tendency is to say this. God will give you the gift of eternal life. You give him the gift of your faith. And so they've got this exchange going on. You give him your faith and he gives you salvation. It's logical. People say that makes sense to me. I think that's what I did. And then they decide that that's true. But is that what the Bible teaches? The scripture says we are saved by grace through faith and what? That is not your own doing. The truth of the gospel is presented and we are told that the way that we receive it, the pictures that are given to it is you are dead in your trespasses and sin unresponsive, blind, I can't see it, deaf, I can't hear it, darkened in our understandings, we don't get it. So then how did we see, hear, understand, indeed, believe? God. It is the work of God. And, and, and it's important because the, the idea, it, it often is presented, and it's a strange picture in my mind, but the idea as if some of you, I don't know if they still do this. When once upon a time I was a child, there were you would have birthday parties for children, and then you would have a pin the tail on the donkey. right? And there would be, a, a, I don't know if it's even legal these days to let kids walk around with something sharp. But there would, and, and then they would blindfold the kid. Have you seen this, done this, heard of this? And, and, you, and spin the kid maybe, and then he's got to go and poke it somewhere. And it, they're hoping whoever gets closest to where the tail is actually supposed to go on the picture of the donkey wins that. And you place it. And, and there's a sense in which it seems like the modern church presents this idea. Everyone has faith. Faith is yours. Now you just got to decide where you're going to put it. You know, and so you wander around and you, and you visit this church and you go to this group and you hear, you, you listen, read this book and you decide where you're going to stick it. And that makes sense. And when we look at people, that's generally how they live. The scriptures are not saying that. And so, he, so this is the confusing thing that often happens. And so when Paul would come into a place and preach, when there would be a response, he would be somewhat concerned, especially remember, here he had only been able to be with them for three weeks. 
So he's quite concerned. Was their response, seeming response to the gospel, was it that there was a genuine work of grace imparting saving faith in their life? Or had they just been momentarily convinced to say, I'll be a part of that. And that's why as time went by, he wants to send Timothy back to see if they are still there and still strong. To know that their faith was genuine, a work of God, and not the, the, the false and fleeting work of men. And so faith has its origin, its starting point. It starts with God. Remember the same kind of thing, picture we get when uh, the disciples are telling Jesus, who do people say that I am? And the responses were various, right? Well, some people say you're a great prophet. Some people say this and that. Some people think you're Elijah. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, the verse before, what, is, what does Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. There is something extraordinary. It, it wasn't something that could simply be taught and simply be learned. It could be declared to him, but for him to lay hold of it required an act of God. A powerful, life-giving, revealing work of God. It's important for us to understand it because when we grasp that, it changes our whole approach to the Christian life. I am saved all because of God. All because of His grace. I owe Him everything. Whereas the modern practice, He did 95% and you did 5. Or He did 99 and you did 1. And there's a tendency for people to think, well, look, I've already decided to become a Christian. Isn't that enough for God? Do I also have to live a godly life? How godly does it have to be? Do I also have to go to church regularly? That doesn't mean midweek meetings too, does it? You know, I mean, that, that's the idea. You know, he should be happy at least that I chose him and didn't choose something else. That's madness. But that madness is brought on by the thought that somehow we are the ones who pass judgment on whether or not God is the true God. I will decide whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. I will decide whether or not I will follow him. Instead of understanding the truth of it all is this. There is one judge. And it's not you and me. And he is going to judge everyone. And we, the question is this. Will you be accepted by God. I often urge the reminder of this. The challenge that people need to understand in the gospel is this. If you were to stand before him, will you be accepted by God? And the answer is no. Unless by grace you have come to believe in Jesus Christ, you have no hope of acceptance with God. 
But we've turned the gospel around and it's not man's need for acceptance with God. And that acceptance, that ability to come to God, to draw near to Him, to find access to Him, is only through Christ. We've turned it around and not, say, not ask people, will God accept you? Where we can say, for in Christ's name and by His power, I will be accepted. No, we've turned it around and said, will you accept Christ? Will you accept God? And so we, 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 we make it as if men are in the position of judge. And, and, and we, we, whereas we ought to make men understand, you have a desperate need to be accepted by God. And there is only one means of acceptance with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. But instead, we plead, 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 please, you accept him. Please accept him. And we make God seem small and needy. When we, people need to understand God is not small. He is glorious, omnipotent, omnipresent. He is so glorious, so exalted, so sovereign, and so powerful. And we are needy, helpless struggling, and apart from Him, utterly hopeless. If, if we don't get those things right, it just misses things up from the beginning. Faith has its beginning point, and its beginning point is the work of God. And it's confusing to us because we say, but I remember the day I believed. Yes. And why did you believe that day and not before? Did you get smarter that day? Did you get holier that day? What made the difference from one day to the next? Ah, the grace of God. For by grace have you been saved through faith. He came and granted you that understanding. It's John chapter 1 says it this way, reminding us of these things. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, all right, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, but to all who did receive him. So what makes the difference between those who don't receive him and those who do receive him? Now, the scripture answers this way differently than we do. John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, what does it mean to receive him? To believe in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Well, how did that work out? That they had the right to become the children of God? That they believed in his name? Here's how this all came about. Verse 13. Who were born. Oh, they were born again. How, how did they come to that condition of being born again? Well, it's not, by, not of blood. So it has nothing to do with my parents and my heritage and my history. Okay? It's not of the will of the flesh of the or the will of man. So it's not by what anybody else wants for me, and it's not even by my own wants. It's not by anyone's will for me, and it's not by the exercise of my will. Wow, so it have nothing to do with my heritage, nothing to do with what other people will, and nothing to do with my will. Then how does anyone ever believe and receive? Well, what does it say? Not born of blood or of flesh or of the will of men, but of God. When one is born of God, which John 3 will then go on to say, how does that happen? The Spirit of God blows. 
He comes in the hearing of the gospel, imparting life and faith. Which is uh, interesting because over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we have that, that struggle going on in the early church at Corinth. Some followers of Apollos and some followers of Paul and some followers of Cephas. And they're giving all of the credit, in a sense, for their salvation to these men. And they're even trying to play against it all. Uh, who is more important and who is affected more? What's interesting is the way that it's explained in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5 to 7. It says this. Paul says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. They didn't give faith. But they served in the giving of the gospel. Now listen closely. Whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Verse 6. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. I think it's important for us to see it. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God gives the growth. The significant important about this is even then. The seed, who gives the seed to the sower? God's the maker of seeds. What about water? Where does that come from? God's the maker of water. So the servants are just making use of what God has given to them. And it's important to note this. Not only does no glory go to the sower, not only does no glory go to the waterer, no glory goes to the soil. Right? It doesn't say one plants, one waters, but the soil provides the increase. But God alone does it. Even with regard to planting, is it the, the soil is the only reason that it produces? Can God not cause great growth to come out of a desert? Can he not take a fertile land and turn it into a famine-ridden, hard-grounded desert? Yeah. So the seeming natural condition of the soil means nothing it is the power of God at work through the means of his word that he's given that makes all the difference all the glory for our first faith for our beginnings of faith belong to God so faith's starting point is when by grace he brings us by grace he turns us when by grace he enables with us to understand the gospel and respond believing now we get a little bit deeper into this passage to a degree of things that are undesirable and somewhat uncomfortable because listen to this, what it says that, uh, here. We see faith's, what I would call faith's sure pain. He said he's worried for a moment whether or not, in verse 5, for this reason when I could no longer bear it, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I really didn't know when I first left. I had hopes that you had the faith that was given of God. And it wasn't just an, an earthly response that was coming out of you. So I sent Timothy to find out. Verse 6. But now Timothy has come to us and has brought us the good news of your faith. And the love and reported that you always have for us. Here's the challenge that goes on. In, in verse 3 it says this. 
I've written chapter 3, verse 3. That no one should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Is that, is that an exciting verse? Don't be moved by these afflictions, these pains and problems and difficulties, because you yourselves know we were destined for this. What? Is that desirable? Destined for persecution? Remember, the challenge for this church in Corinth is they, when they were receiving the gospel, it was already in persecutions and afflictions. So much were the persecutions and problems that Paul himself and his crew were run out of town. And even when they were ran out of, run out of town, the persecutions, the problems, the afflictions, the distresses on the church at Thessalonica continued unabated. Things didn't get easier after Paul left. It continued to be difficult. It continued to be hard. And he says this to them, you know that this is what we were destined for. This is not an accident. This is by God's design. This is the way that God has laid it out for us that we suffer. Philippians 1.29 says it this way. And it's a very interesting verse, that one that again helps us to reorient the way that we think. Because Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, so the first thing that's granted to us is what? Believing in Him. Faith in Him. Most of us would be really happy if the verse stopped right there. But it does not. It has been granted to us for the sake of the name, not only to believe in him, but what? Also to suffer for his sake. Wait a second. Are you telling me that those who, who wonderfully experience the salvation of God can surely expect suffering in their life? Well, that's a hard sell. It is a hard sell, which is why what are most people selling these days? Here's what you get. If you turn to Christ, all your problems go away. He'll fix everything. Problems at work, gone. Problems in, at home with your marriage, gone. Problems with your kids, gone. You want everything fixed? Come on. Who's going to respond to that? A lot of people. Is it because they have faith in Christ or because they want things fixed? Yeah, so they're not coming because of faith. They're coming because they want a fixin'. But that's not what the promise is. Are you ready to come, ready to cling to Christ, even though you know that when you cling to Christ with a confidence in the cross that represents his suffering, that you will have your own cross to take up daily as you follow him. Really? Yes. The scriptures are wonderfully clear about that. However uncomfortable it is to us, 
This idea that is, it is clearly assigned and clearly appointed. In Acts chapter 14, important to note this, Acts 14 verse 22. Remember seeing these verses years ago and wondering why these oft get so overlooked. This is now Barnabas and, and Paul are going back through the churches and the areas where they have preached, where they've planted churches, and it says as they're traveling back through these areas, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, what is it that is strengthening their souls? Encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying. So now are you ready for something that is strengthening and encouraging? Here it is. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, wait a second. How is that encouraging? To me, encouraging is you join the kingdom of God, no more tribulations, <laughs> no more. Pro that seems more encouraging to me, right? In my human flesh and self-serving desires, maybe. But here's the reality. It is strengthening and encouraging because as we live our lives and face challenges and difficulties and distresses and afflictions and persecutions, real pain and problems, we know this. Hmm. This does not mean God is against me. This does not mean God has abandoned me. Indeed, it is through these things that we move towards the kingdom of God. These problems are no sign. They don't mean that he is against me. And so I, my faith isn't going to be shaken. As the problems come, God, what, what? Maybe he's not real. I mean, there are... There's a, there's a Hollywood films that are made. And one recently made uh, to this effect where, where someone is struggling through and, and they're facing some sort of problems. And, and the difficulty is that this is not representing true faith in the gospel. But a historic segment of the church without the gospel that was going out. And as they went out into hard countries, they faced all kinds of persecutions and all kinds of difficulties. And then they began to wonder as time went by, why is God silent? Why, why is he not helping us? These people have all just been killed. We're being imprisoned, persecuted. Why is he silent? Maybe he's not there. Maybe we wasted all of our time. Maybe we shouldn't have come in the first place. Maybe there's no difference between what we believe and what the people who we've came to be. Maybe it's all just a bunch of stuff. Well, are you working on the assumption that God doesn't hear? Simply because persecutions continue? Because tribulations continue? He... It's not that God doesn't hear. It may be that you're not hearing. You need to hear God. And what he says is, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. It has been granted to you for the sake of his name, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his name. And whoever, as we considered earlier this morning, whoever suffered like Christ suffered, was God not there at the cross? Did he not see the suffering of his son? Indeed, he was there every moment. 
He was in effect even there in the moment when Jesus is saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God is still there. But in that moment, he is pouring out his wrath against sinners onto Christ. But Christ is, but God is still there, present every step of the way. Listen, the scriptures are so wonderfully clear on this. Um, Jesus says in John 16 to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now here he makes an important divide. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This tribulation you have in the world, it's temporary. And because you know that it's temporary, because you're sure of my victory in me, you have peace. And so the believer can have a peace, the scriptures, that surpasses understanding. How, how are you not abandoning the faith? With all of the problems and all of the things that have happened to you. How could I possibly abandon the faith? God created the heavens and the earth. He sent his son. He died on the cross. He's, he rose from the dead. He, he delivers me from my sin. He's, what do my problems and my difficulties and my pain and suffering, how does that make the truth any less true. Right? It doesn't. If you actually believe the truth. To be the truth. Because. Uh, what goes on outside. Does not affect our confidence and peace inside. Really the scriptures say it even, even more clearly. The way Paul will say it to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. And I, I often want to say this because sometimes I think it's, it's a warning against our complacency. As we want to live for the sake of, if we live for the sake of the name of Christ in this world, we'll have peace in him and we'll have tribulation in the world. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, when you meet your dear brothers and sisters in Christ who, who, who love to uh, say, um, we need to claim the Bible's promises as our own. You know, let's claim the promises. This is a promise. And here's the beauty of it. Promises of God prove true whether we claim them or not. <laughs> now, but the reason why I say there's a challenge laced in there, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But you know what? If you don't live a godly life for the sake of the name and make that name known, the world will be pretty comfortable with you. They'll be happy to hang out with you. They'll be happy to sit down with you and play games with you and enjoy with you because they feel like we're the same. 
But the more distinctively clear you are in your commitment to Christ, in living a godly life, in proclaiming the Son of God and salvation only through Him, in turning from your sin and calling others to turn from their sin, the world has a problem with that. And so that's often one of those times where I get to ask myself this question and say this. Is the world loving you? Jesus reminds in John 18 as he spoke to his disciples, say, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you're not of this world. That's why it will hate you. And so, so you begin to ask yourself this, does the world love me? Do, do, do I just gel with them? Do we mesh wonderfully? Or is there a tremendous disconnect? And those who are committed to the worldly pleasures and worldly indulgences that are out there, they don't want to be around me. <laughs> You know, those who are committed to, those, to worldly activities and worldly pleasures, they don't even call me anymore. Because they know when they call me, I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to do it. And you shouldn't be doing it either. Because it's wrong. Rather than going in that way, you need to turn from all of those useless, vain, hopeless things to Christ. In whom alone there is hope. You do that, and then what, what do the friends begin to do? Oh, this is a goody, goody, holier than thou. He thinks he's better. You know, he thinks he's the new Messiah. And whatever they will come up with, they'll begin mocking you. They'll begin bringing you down. Weirdly enough, that even happens in supposedly Christian circles. <laughs> Where... You, you know, you've got, you've got this group of Christians who think, well, yeah, we can be Christians while still sort of enjoying all of the things of the world as long as we just don't go all the way and cross certain lines. Well, the person who says, no, I want to I take every thought captive to Christ. I want to please him every moment of my life. He, he's the one who enlisted me. He's the one who saved. I don't want to do anything that would displease or disappoint him even for a moment. What's wrong with you? You're no fun. Would that happen? No, and so the worry becomes, in my own mind, is if everything is good and, and worldly people don't have any problem with me and I'm not facing any persecution and any affliction, then I've got to start asking myself this question. Am I living a godly life in Christ Jesus? Am I, am I really living as I should and speaking as I should? Because if I am, somebody's got to have a problem with me. <laughs> because I'm in a world that hates him. Hates him partly because he says he's the only way. No one comes to the Father but by me. So you're saying all other religions are wrong? Uh, I'm saying what the scripture says is there's only one God. There's only one true God. There's only one true path of salvation. There's only one name for salvation. There is no other way. So yes, all other religions are wrong. All other ways and practices of men are wrong. All other hopes and feelings and imaginations of men are wrong. God alone is true and will remain true even if every man be a liar. 
So ultimately, it's not we alone who are saying all other religions are false. We're really saying only this is true because he has revealed what is true. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And thus, by default, everything else is baseless, groundless, hopeless. You tell the world that where, where there's an argument for respect one another's religions and, and, and esteem this and esteem. How can you respect what is false and what surely leads people to eternal punishment? You know, you can be gracious and we should. We should speak the truth in love. But as we, as we speak it in love, we're speaking the truth in love. And the truth is a clear line. And we do it in an unashamed manner. As we see this, this surety of trials and sufferings and struggles, I mean, the, the, the word of God is so clear. First uh, Peter says this all over, and we've been studying that in the morning hour. I mean, if Christ, or since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same intention. He is our perfect example, our perfect pattern in everything. Uh, the scriptures even will say things like this, if you're ready for it. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now that's getting even a step further, isn't it? See, the natural tendency is to say, This suffering is miserable, take it away. Now, for the believer, there's a sense in which we may be able to be, do, we can do both at the same time. God, the suffering is miserable, take it away. But I know that it is designed by you. I know that it is appointed and ordained by you. I know that it has a good and glorious purpose. And so I rejoice in it. I hope that it's run its course and fulfilled what it's supposed to. But there, has, there, there needs to be this combination. We can pour out our hearts and the Psalms are filled with pleadings for God to take away the pain. And you're not ungodly for desiring for him to take away the pain. But we can do something because of the grace of God at work within us that would seem almost, some might think, bipolar in a sense. We can plead for it to be removed while at the same time rejoicing in our God and in the good designs that we are sure he is working for his glory and our good in the suffering. So it says rejoice, Romans 5, not only that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. This is one of the tests of faith. Here come sufferings. Here come difficulties. Is the, is the, is the effect of that endurance and character? Or is it compromise and sin? Because suffering will push us one direction or another, doesn't it? As it, as it comes down on you and as you're crushing in the weight of it, it's going to cause you to move one direction or the other. And, and those who stand in the grace of God, it will produce endurance and character. 
Those who are outside of the grace of God, when, that, when the problems and difficulties, they seek a way of escape in the ways of the world. The pleasures, those things that would cover up and, and give us some momentary sense of escape from it. But that's fleeting, isn't it? The world's sense of escape from it, how long does it last? A couple hours? And then they've got to do, add more to it. And, and, and it never, they try to drown their sorrows through all kinds of worldly means. Does it work? No. And they keep having to fill it up. But for those who are in the grace of God, in the midst of their sorrows, what do they also have? A peace that passes understanding. A trust that strengthens them, that produces endurance. And that endurance continues to mold and strengthen and define their character. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful. So, so God has wonderful designs. How do we, and how we respond to suffering. That's why James says it this way in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. For you know... That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Yeah. For, for the believer, the testing of their faith produces steadfastness. We remember the parable of the sower and the soils. Right? In Matthew 13. And for those who don't have faith, the testing of their claims of faith, their professions of faith, their responses in a call to faith, what happens? The testing chokes them out, and they don't endure, and they don't continue, and it proves. But for the believer, that suffering produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's why James 1.12 then says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. It's, it's that same kind of thing. Uh, I'm under great stress. I'm under great duress. I'm under great agony now. But when I cross that finish line, I get the crown of life. The, the picture that's often given, even sometimes given in the scripture, is that picture of an athlete. And maybe you might imagine yourself in an extended race, maybe a half marathon or a full marathon. There may be some point during that race where you feel you have hit the wall. And what do you have to do when you have hit the wall? You have to keep going. You have to keep breaking through that wall. And sometimes you get your second wind. But what was going on just before you got your second wind? You thought you were going to die. You thought you might collapse. And then suddenly you got your second wind. If the race is long enough, there may be second wind. There may be third wind. <laughs> you know, where a number of times. And you, some of us have seen that kind of footage where the person is coming into that final stretch and they are done. And they fall. And you just think, why don't they just lie there and stop? But somehow in that absolute destroyed condition, what do they do? They're crawling towards that line because they know when they get there. Now, here's the weird part. When they get there, what will have happened? 
they finish the marathon. What do they get? Not much. I mean, maybe, maybe they win a prize. Usually the person crawling is probably not in first place. So, a sense of accomplishment? I mean, some earthly prize and, and certainly something that they can take some pride in. But what, what about for us? I can't go on anymore. Is it possible we could, a believer could feel that way at times? Sure. But even then we, when we feel that way, that we can't go on, the fact is what? By the grace of God, we can. And we press on in faith, looking to Him, the author and finisher of our faith, and we break through and we overcome. And in the end, there is a crown of life that is waiting for us. The, the world cannot offer prizes. And whatever prizes it can offer are of such limited value. Such short duration. But the sense of this is the crown that you receive. It is an enduring, endless crown. Oh, how powerful. Now let's move on to the third thought today, faith's strengthening process. If you go back with me to verse 2, and this is interesting. In verse 2 it says this, having been concerned with where they were at, what was going on, it says, we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Okay, so there is some sense in which faith is entirely the gift of God, that he works in someone, but he works that gift of faith with them in concert with the gospel that is delivered to them. He also works the strengthening and establishing and supporting of our faith in what? The truths of the word of God that we are ongoingly taught. Now, for this poor church... They had three weeks worth of Bible teaching and preaching. How doctrinally strong are they going to be? Probably not going to have all that much in three weeks time. And so he sends Timothy back to establish them, to strengthen them, to support them, to encourage them, to urge them, to comfort them. He's afraid that they may be distracted. I want you to know this. You don't expect that the struggles in this life are necessarily going to stop. Trust that God's in control. They, they have all kinds of uh, uh, difficulties and confused notions. You're going to figure out by chapter 4, they don't know what the day of the Lord means. They don't know what the coming of the lawless one means. They have confusion about uh, the resurrection and for what's going to happen to those who have already died compared to us who are risen. So there's a lot of things that they just don't know. And the only, the only process from them go... See, th this is the challenge. For those of us that God grants faith, Generally, it, we have come to believe the gospel. But the, the, so the faith is rooted in clear gospel truths that are given. And we believe it, we obey it. 
But the scripture has much more that we are to believe and obey. And so there is this ongoing body of truth, necessary teaching, that our faith grows in a real sense as we grasp this. To, to, to really get, get a picture of this, um, look, at, look at what it says in verse 10. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now that is a really weird sentence for most of us. What is lacking in our faith? What do you mean what is lacking in our faith? How dare you say something is lacking in our faith? And how are you going to come and provide that? Uh, you know, where is it that my faith is at about 75% and you're going to get there and lay hands on me and give me the extra 25%? Is that what it is? No, no, no. The belief in the gospel for those who have faith, what percentage of resting in the gospel is there? Complete, total, 100%. So then what would be lacking? What's lacking is there's more to be believed. They don't know much about the second coming. They, they would have very little instruction as to how to really understand some of the details of the old covenant to the new covenant, the fulfillments of Christ, the persons of Christ. They would have confusion regarding a lot of the promises of Christ. They would need instruction as to uh, practical things on how they are to order their local church. There is a lot of things lacking in their faith. But you've got to understand, sometimes our faith isn't so much how much we believe in terms of percentage, but how much truth that we have come to know and believe. Do you get that? So they needed more instruction. And, and every bit of true instruction that they would then receive from some from Timothy in this letter that would give them some important essentials to establish and encourage them and then Paul himself also wants to come to further supply what is lacking in their faith because it, he, here's the the idea our desire to increase our faith um, part of the challenge would be this um, someone might be fearful in the midst of a storm but for the believer when he Whatever these people's backgrounds, as they come to know that God is sovereign over all of the storms of this earth. That that's not happening by some demon over here or some goddess over there casting this storm down. You know, and that God is fighting against that demon trying to protect you from that storm and, and we'll see how it works out. No! When you come to realize God is sovereign over the storms then do we fear in the storms no when, when you come to recognize that well god is sovereign over all of our protection god is sovereign over all of our health god is sovereign sovereign over all of our circumstances so the the more we know about god's character about god's power about god's being about god's purpose the more we know in a sense the more our faith has grown 
That's why when we, when we grow in grace and knowledge, that's when what is lacking in our faith is supplied. And, so, and it's important because certain things that are lacking, if we don't know them, like they were struggling with, this is not an accident. God has not abandoned you. I'm reminding you that you're supposed to go through this and you're supposed to face these difficulties. Uh, this, is, this is part of the struggle. In, uh, so they had faith, but they, and they had firmly believed, but they needed to know more. 2 Timothy, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy to Timothy, chapter 3. He says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. I want to put those pieces together for you. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. So the expansion of faith will expand with what? What you learn. So what is lacking in their faith is that more learning of truth is necessary. And that's what Paul is saying here to, to Timothy. Um, what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. And is what? Profitable for training, correction, rebu rebuke, reproof, instruction in righteousness. All of these that the man of God may be competent or thoroughly equipped for every good work. Which means, how do we get to where we're thoroughly equipped? Well, there has to be nothing lacking in your faith. How do we, so here's the thing, how do we increase our faith? We increase our learning. As we increase our learning from the scriptures, what we have done is we've increased those things that we firmly believe in. And they give us solid ground to stand on in the midst of all of the attacks of the enemy, in the midst of all of the hatred of the world, in the midst of all of the problems and struggles and trials that we have and that we will face. And one more thought before closing. Faith's soothing power. This is a, a wonderfully blessed encouragement. Faith, the faith God gives us is so, so strengthening and enabling and empowering. But as we see his grace at work in others, that also has a blessed effect for us. Because look what it says in verse 7 and 8. For this reason, brothers, in all our distresses and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So there is some real experiential sense in what? Seeing the grace of God in other people's lives has a soothing, strengthening, and comforting effect on my life and on your life. We like to see Christ. We like to see his hand and power at work. Keep continuing to read in that passage. Look what it says in verse 9. No, verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. See, that's the idea. To have faith, your faith, and standing fast in the Lord are the same things. Further, verse 9 says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, 
for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. So there is a real soothing effect of this in the sense that when we see God's hand and grace in others and, and, and their faith being borne out in the midst of trials, it gives us comfort. It gives us joy to see the grace and strength of God in other people's lives. I love the way that Paul often does this because there, there is this tendency to make uh, salvation and the Christian life super exclusively personal. It is remarkably personal, but it is not a merely private affair. There is a community there, there is a, a gathering of the saints. There, there is a, a recognition of what strengthens us sometimes as we're facing hardships is to recognize that our, our brothers and sisters are struggling under the same kinds of hardships. And, and when we hear about them bearing up and continuing and persevere, persevering, it emboldens us. It fills us with joy and thankfulness to God. These are wonderful results of seeing God's hands and grace in the lives of others. So the notion that, no, 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 my faith is between me and God. My spirituality, it's a private thing between me and Him. There is a private aspect to it. But if that's all there is to what you're claiming is your relationship with God, beware. Because the real work of God, it brings you not only into recon reconciliation with God through Christ. It has brought us not only union with Christ, but it's brought us into real connection with those who are Christ's. He is the head and we are the body. Various members of it. In the same sense in which we are really connected to Christ, we are also really connected to one another. That's why we weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. We bear one another's burdens because he stirs up within us that real rich relationship. So in summary, just a few thoughts we've considered today out of God's word. First of all, we saw that faith has a starting point and that starting point is God. God grants, imparts faith to us in the hearing of the gospel. Secondly, we saw faith's sure pain. It's going to come with problems. Life is always going to be fraught with problems, trials, tribulation, persecution, distress, and difficulty. And it is all by design. And we can trust the designer. I like the way that that passage ends uh, in 1 Peter that says we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Let those who suffer in accordance with the will of God entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. What a powerful, strengthening reality. And we see it is part of that strengthening process. It is through the trials that God hones us and develops our character. It is even sometimes through that trials and the struggles that some who thought they were in the faith can, can see their responses and realize, uh, this, is, this has not produced in me endurance and character. It's actually produced in me compromise and worldliness I need the grace of God. 
have mercy on me. Faith has that wonderful um, power. Our faith can be expanded and strengthened, and it does so as we continue to add knowledge from God's word. I believe this also, and I believe this also, and I believe this also. And we do, we're doing that constantly as we're exposed to more and more of the truth revealed in God's word. And then we see faith's soothing power. He comforts us through one another. The scripture also reminds us that God is the God of all comfort. And one of the ways he brings us comfort and joy is by letting us see the hand, his hand in others' lives. Their struggles, their faith, their perseverance, their peace, their love, their joy. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, just look to you at the end of this time, I don't know the present circumstances of those who are here. In the ebb and flow of life, God, we have uh, certain seasons that are, that are uh, relatively easy by practical standards and other times that we are under great duress. But Lord, we recognize that you are absolutely sovereign and absolutely in control in all of those seasons. You are as in control full control in the midst of the storm as you are day in on the peaceful and sunny day you are as much in control in in the every single circumstance that that comes by us god grant us that we would know and believe and trust these things as we now turn our um our thoughts uh, to sing to you concerning this, this great grace that is ours. Plead with you con to continue to teach us that you might expand and extend and grow our faith. Lord, we pray that you would do so. Lord, I, I, would, I would pray for any who are here um, that are in a time of relative ease, that you would still cause us to evaluate our lives. And are we living a godly life in Christ Jesus? Are we living so overtly, genuinely abandoned to Christ that we make the world around us uncomfortable? Lord, stir us to that sort of diligence and faithfulness. If we are under duress and under difficulty, Lord, we pray that we would look to you with real trust and perseverance, that we would, um, by laying hold of you in faith, have that strengthening that would enable us to show forth a proven character that you work through your people. Lord, if, if there are uh, others who are here that have found that in these circumstances, it has not been perseverance and it has not been character and it has not been joy and rejoicing, but it has been uh, uh, a sin and compromise and pleasure and worldliness. Lord, may you... Um, May you grip and convict and open hearts and minds to the need for your mercy, to the need for your powerful grace to impart them with a living and transforming faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.